Escape Pod 329. January 26, 2012. Paris, by Zachary Jernigan. Hello and welcome to Escape Pod. I'm Mer Lafferty. Yes, you're normally used to hearing Norm Sherman at this point in the month, but Norm has taken a blood oath against the last person who wronged him and is currently smearing his face with paint, stripping to a loincloth, and going on the hunt. He should be back next month, if he gets away with it. This week's story is Pears by Zachary Jernigan. Zachary lives in Portland, Maine with his roller derby girlfriend, her cantankerous teenage daughter, and a cat with an eating disorder. He blogs at ZacharyJernigan.blogspot.com. Pairs was originally published in Asimov's Science Fiction, August 2011. So pick a form you like and settle into it. It's story time. Pairs by Zachary Jernigan I had been practicing turning myself into a knife. Between star systems, I gathered and focused my particles into a triangle, a sharp shape. Hurling myself against the diamond-hard walls of my small ship, the point of the weapon hardened. I honed myself. You see, I had decided to murder my employer. I had studied his weaknesses and come to believe myself capable of the act. I did not know when and where, nor did I know what would trigger it. I simply knew it had to happen. On that day I would either die or buy myself a measure of freedom. Originally this was the extent of my plan, to serve myself. My name is Arahant. I am one of two humans still inhabiting a physical form, diminished though it is. Outside the walls of my ship, I am in form a faintly translucent white specter, strong and powerfully built, an artist's anatomical model. Over the years, it has become difficult to remember what my face looked like, and thus my features are only approximately human, my head bare. My eyes glow the color of Earth's sun. I am quite beautiful, Luca tells me. On more than one occasion she has run her hands over the ghostly contours of my body. I wish you were solid, she once said. Oh, Ari, the things I would do to you. Loka is the one I am forced to follow and observe. Her name means crazy, an appropriate name. She is the second human possessing a body. Technically her body is a black, whale-shaped ship one hundred meters long, but her avatars take the form of anything she imagines. Very rarely she is human and never the same person twice. More often she wears the bodies of flying animals. She dreams of flying, which is appropriate. Our profession is transport. For three centuries we have hauled the disembodied souls of Earth, each stored in a projection cube, from star to star to be sold. They are quite expensive, I am told, but I have no understanding of the means of exchange. Nearly everything is hidden from me, and Loka sees nothing. The reason souls are bought varies, Often they are kept as curios. Sometimes they are used to attract customers to the buyer's business. My employer used to goad me on these points. Is it not wonderful to know your people are put to such good use? Imagine how happy it must make them. But I know the truth. Even without physical bodies, men become lonely. They despair, and I feel it. Surely Loka feels it. She goes crazier and crazier in such close proximity to ghosts. Before the events of this story, only the luckiest souls were bought in pairs or groups, a rare occurrence. Now, because of Loka and I, it is the rule that souls must be sold in pairs. 
It is my one accomplishment, making men marginally less alone. Still, I arrange nothing. I have no power over the situation. I follow Loka from a distance of 100,000 kilometers, never any closer, and report anything unusual. I need not watch very closely. Loka's duty is to dream violent dreams, to defend and deliver her payload. Hopefully her capacity for violence will never be tested. She is categorically insane, a fact that, my employer insists, makes her uniquely suited to the job of protector. Employer, job, the terms are ridiculous, for Loka and I are not paid. Our terms of service are not negotiable. I am no one's employee, but I prefer not to use the word slave or master. I cling to life. I value it, though what value it has is measured in a mere handful of molecules. I possess no unique or useful knowledge, only memories. My ship, small though it is, has several lifetimes' worth of entertainment files. I immerse myself in virtual environments so flawlessly rendered I forget they are fiction. I have lived many lives largely uninterrupted by my duties. An observer might call these lives empty, but between systems, often decades at a time, they are all I have. By my count, the year is 2432, though I may well be wrong as we travel faster than the speed of light. Not that it matters. Earth is dead, ground up for fuel, all her souls absconded with. In the time it has taken me to lose track of my own lives, a hundred, a thousand years, the fate of mankind has not changed. I record these words for a posterity that will not exist. I was interrupted in the middle of making love to a four-armed furred woman. My life of four years dissolved around me and I awoke in my single room to find a message written on the surface of my desk. We have arrived in the Sfari system. A quick check in my journal confirmed that we had visited it once before, nearly two centuries previously. A second visit is rare. Before, under me, spun Sfari, a blue-green marble. To my right, in the process of docking with a triple-tory-shaped station, was Loka. She opened a bay door for me, and I guided my ship inside. Several robata, eight-limbed and silvered, ignored me as they passed by in the maintenance corridor. Their carapaces nearly brushed the ceiling, an inspection team from the satellite I recalled from last time. I found Loka in the debarking lounge. She had taken on the form of a five-foot-tall flying squirrel, cartoonishly feminine, one of her favorites. A paw tapped the handle of the cart loaded with souls, eyes staring out the lounge's one window. There was nothing to see but the pitted wall of the station. "'How are you, Loka?' I asked. She turned and smiled, revealing large incisors. "'Arahant, you wouldn't imagine where I've been.' "'I bet I can. "'We have this conversation every time we meet. "'No, no, I was a hawk.' "'She curled one claw, beckoning me closer as if to share a secret, and whispered, "'I just flew in. "'I'm a hawk right now, actually, but you can't really tell. "'A vicious hawk.' "'You are?' "'Yes, I am.' "'She rocked back, looked me up and down. "'You look wonderful. Where have you been?' "'I considered my life just erased.' I had been an author of erotica on Luna, a famous man. I had twelve children from seven women, a penthouse apartment in Saffron Towers, and an endless supply of drugs. It had been wonderful. Wonderful, but already fading, disappearing quicker and quicker the more I tried to cling to it. Nowhere special, I told her. Her rodent face managed to look sad. That's sad, she said. The door irised open, admitting us into the station. The cart guides us to the buyer. A cube intended for him, her, it, glows, and Loka hands it over. That is all, generally. 
Sometimes I am asked to demonstrate how to activate the soul projection, and I pantomime pushing the cube's single button. I have been instructed that Loka is not to perform this action, perhaps because, unlike me, she could physically depress the button. I have been warned several times not to allow this to happen. Apparently the customers, too, are warned never to activate the projection before us. This used to disappoint me. I used to long to see the person trapped within the device, but now I know it is for the best. If I see another human, I have to explain what I am and what I do. The schedule is the same every time. We deliver the souls and store the cart. If sales are negotiated in the interim, we return to the ship and retrieve more cubes. Thus, during the night, or whatever constitutes the end of the business day, Loka and I are allowed to wander. I do not follow her, I do not witness what trouble she causes. For me, carnal pleasures are had only in simulated life. Our first day in orbit above Sfari, we delivered seventeen souls to representatives of, to my untrained eye, nine species. The final three transactions occurred at the central market, a raucous, jumbled warren of stalls displaying items recognizable and foreign. The various species eyed us with expressions I read as menacing, hungry, disinterested, never friendly. One smiled, or possibly grimaced, exposing blue and yellow gums. He gestured to me and tried to hand Loka a sheaf of gold-leaf bills in exchange. "'Fuck you,' she said. "'I'm a hawk and you better back off. I wouldn't sell Ari for all the gum in a candy store.' We locked the cart to a metal stanchion. There I said goodbye to Loka. "'Goodbye, Loka. "'Wait, Ari. What are you going to do tonight?' "'I do not know. Maybe I will get a drink.' She did not laugh or crack a smile at my joke. "'Oh, okay, Ari. I am going to eat a rabbit.' Bye. She lifted her arms, let out a piercing cry, and bolted down an alley between stalls. I traveled the triple Tory, a trip of six hours, approximately thirty kilometers. Each contained a different atmosphere, but this presented little challenge to me. I can pretend to swim as easily as pretend to walk. The satellite's population was by turns elegantly menacing, sleekly teresional, gelatinously disgusting. Four of the species I recognized from sales earlier in the day— Free of containment suits, they were no prettier. It happened while I was watching diners from under a restaurant awning in the main Taurus. The establishment catered to what I thought of as far as native species, the one most represented in the satellite, a crow-billed, green bipedal people. I recognized one from a delivery earlier. He, she, it, and several others stood on long, thin legs around a high circular table. On its top, a projected woman danced. A human soul, the first I had ever seen. I stared at her naked body, unable to look away. She was beautiful, muscular thighs and arms bangled in silver and gold. She made me ache in a way unrelated to physiology. I have no organs, no bones, yet I swear I felt the sparse molecules of my being shudder collectively. I had seen real women ages ago, another lifetime ago. I have made love to many more in virtual life, but this was something else. The essence of a woman, the essence of her dancing, not hips gyrating, but the idea of hips and breasts, the idea and memory of real sex. Suddenly she looked up, stared at me as though she had felt my eyes on her. My reaction was swift, almost as if I had been planning to run, had known it was going to happen, as if my ghost muscles held the memory of flight. I condensed myself into a tight ball and rocketed away, but not before I saw the fear in her eyes. More than likely she would be taken somewhere to be displayed, never to see another of her kind. Somehow she knew. We left. 
and I immersed myself in the best sorts of lives, full of danger and sex, but they went sour. I flitted from one to the next, unable to find comfort. I was followed. On Crete in the 4th century BC, a young girl with golden eyes stood always on the periphery of public markets watching me. When I walked toward her, she turned and fled, disappearing into the crowd. On Barsoom, the ghost of a garroted princess floated under the surface of my villa lake, only seen from the corners of my eyes. The long strands of her purple hair became weeds that drifted under the hull just out of reach. In my dressing room at the Ole Opry in 1937, I kept finding items I had not left, a hairbrush, a compact, a crushed package of women's cigarettes. When I went on stage, my knees shook and sweat stained my underarms. Every woman I brought to my dressing room said the same thing. Not tonight, I don't feel right tonight. As Odysseus, I was haunted by visions of Penelope being ravaged by a crow-headed god. I woke in the night clutching my furs, hands and forearms cramped. My grip became weaker and weaker until I could no longer hold a weapon. I could not forget the image of the woman, dancing, her eyes meeting mine. I spent more and more time out of simulation, watching old movies and reading novels I have read many times. From time to time I watched Loka in the viewscreen, her twin lava-red exhaust lashing like tails from side to side, warping space in ways incomprehensible to me. I meditated. Oddly, the discontent focused me. I felt a control over my form I had never known. I changed form faster. My edge became sharper, my point harder. I became a better knife. You're different this time, Ari, Loka told me after we finished the deliveries. I'm going to stay with you tonight. Ten years we had traveled to reach Jejuno, a hazy, city-covered planet. Due to its triple suns, the world never became dark, just a greater shade of gray. We delivered seventy-three souls without incident the first day. The people of Jejuno, bipedal oxygen breathers to my eyes the unfortunate mating of toads and civets, stared at Loka and me in open curiosity, but never opened their mouths to speak. She wore the body of a red-headed boy. It was a coincidence that he resembled the woman I had seen above Sfari. Surely it was. Nonetheless, her appearance unnerved me. I am no different, Loka. Enjoy your evening. But she insisted on coming with me. She talked non-stop as we walked at the bottom of a canyon of skyscrapers, along maze-like alleys winding through tent cities at the building's feet. Nowhere was there a road wide enough for a vehicle. Above us, however, powerful aircraft boomed, snapping the canvas tent walls and blowing trash at our feet. She sneered. It smells, Ari. Smells bad. She draped a piece of purple cloth over her forearm. Do you like this color on me, Ari? She made me stop to watch a puppet show at the intersection of two alleys. We were watched as much as the show. These people, Ari, they're weird. She stepped in a pile of dung or rotted trash. Shit, Ari. What is this? Shit? At the largest intersection we had yet seen, she licked her index finger and held it in the air. Right, Ari. Definitely right. The avenue opened up. In a few kilometers it had become a major thoroughfare of six lanes, along which segmented commuter buses puffed gray smoke from multiple rooftop exhausts. Motorcycles two and three-wheeled weaved around the larger vehicles, wasp engines piercing loudly. A median separated the two lanes, widened into a park of high deciduous trees. We crossed a bridge over the road and onto a path leading inward. Instead of becoming darker, the sky grew lighter. The shadows of the trees stretched behind us, fanning out to each side, and shortly we entered a clearing where an artificial sun shone above the tree line. 
Children, the first we had seen, climbed on a series of large, colorful cages. We should sit, Ari. Talk. Loka sat cross-legged and patted the matted green vegetation. I sat. I did not look into her eyes. I remember the near-sexual reaction I had had to the dancing woman's soul, discussing it with the Loka, especially as she was in a body that resembled the woman was impossible. Loka, there is nothing to talk about. Everything is fine. I know you're lying. She closed her eyes, stretched her arms as if they were wings. How do I know? A hawk knows these things. We can see deep into the hearts of everyone, see fear and pain and desire, all of it. And you, Ari? Her right eye popped open, fixed on me. You're radiating guilt. A lot of guilt. What do I have to feel guilty about, Loka? She closed her eye again. She reached her hand out as if they were claws, grasping and plucked an invisible thing from the air. Ha! I've got it! She cupped whatever it was in her hands, held it up to her ear and shook it, grinned. It's something to do with a woman, Ari. Both eyes popped open and met mine. The grin disappeared. You hurt someone. Oh, Ari, you hurt a woman. For a moment it felt as if I had a heart as if something inside me had misfired, but Loka could not have known about the woman, and I calmed as I thought it through. Maybe I had hurt her. There are a thousand small and unpredictable ways to offend an unbalanced mind. I am sorry if I hurt your feelings, Loka. Whatever I have done, I apologize. She laughed and closed her eyes again. Ari, 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 you're an idiot, but I still love you. I waited, but she would not speak again. Clearly I was correct. I had done something to offend her. After several minutes of waiting, it also became clear that she wanted to be alone, and so I stood up to go. Loka could find her own way to the shuttle. She always did. When I looked back from the tree line, she sat in the same position, listening to the secrets in her hands. My employer's name was Slafstalachem. I thought of it as a he, but I am not sure this is correct. In appearance, he was a two and one-half meter high blue-green reptile, proportions roughly that of a man. His smooth-scaled body shined iridescently. When he smiled, blood-red gums retracted from long black dagger teeth, and all four sinewy limbs ended in sickle-shaped claws. His replacement, whom I also think of as male, is only broadly similar. Reptilian, surely, but large-muscled and slow, peg-toothed. Still, I think they are the same species. I would rather picture one annihilating race than several. I write this, and it sounds ridiculous, as if I still have hope, and if my description of them seems comical, somewhat cartoonish, then I have failed to describe them properly. Beyond their general appearance, I know almost nothing about the race that destroyed Earth. Overall, I found that I was not curious, that I did not want to know. How could a man cope with the loss of an entire planet, everything he has ever known? Knowing our destroyers will not make the tragedy easier to handle. After freeing me from the prison of my projection cube, Slafstalachem told me what his people had done, what I was, and what I was to do. In perfect English, he told me, Your chief value is predictability, Arahant. He will do as you are told. Never forget that you are my pet. He introduced me to Loka, in suspended animation wearing the body I assumed she had lived in on Earth, and seemed to speak with a touch of affection. She is crazy. She tried to bite me. Can you believe? Of course... I will remove that memory, but the craziness. I will not remove the craziness. I would have her no other way. He ran a claw over her face. She needs to be quick and strong. 
We have cargo others envy. He glanced at me. Report anything unusual, anything to me. Initially, you will travel known, generally safe routes. You will become used to routine and what constitutes a problem. I want to know if she becomes unstable. Tell me you understand. I understand, I said. There were so many questions I did not ask. Once I had a family, I might have attempted to free them. I did not even try. Then I was simply grateful to be free. My only questions were, Why have us do this? Why not one of your own people? My new employer had shown me the first of his rare smiles. My people are too self-centered. Good conquerors and bad nurturers. Other species we have tried on occasion, but the situation is much the same. No one wants to lose decades traveling the void. Though we paid well, we could not guarantee delivery. Too many factors in deep space. Sometimes violence is called for. Through eons of trial and error, we have found that no one protects the souls of the dead better than their own people. We delivered seventeen souls the next day. Loka was quiet and spoke nothing of our interaction the previous evening. I was happy to let it rest. I had thought about my conduct and was unable to fathom what I had done to offend her. It embarrasses me to admit, but I had also considered briefly the possibility that Loka had in fact read my mind and seen the dancing woman. Before we stepped into the shuttle, nearly home without incident, she reached out to grab my arm. Ari, she said, and frowned as her hand passed through my shoulder. It had been a while since she had tried to touch me. Ari, she repeated, eyes wide, moving her hand back and forth in my chest. Why, you're a ghost. She was forgetful. I looked down at her arm, cut off at the wrist. You are right, Loka. I turned to enter the shuttle, but she closed her fist inside me, and I felt yet another new sensation, almost like being unable to breathe. I found that I could not move forward, so I turned back to her. No, Ari, she said. You're a ghost right now. But you don't always have to be a ghost. Nobody has to be a ghost. A ghost is a person with no reason to live. A hawk with clipped wings. Oh, you know what I think? I think you need to fill in your body. Grow some flight feathers. Her eyes widened. She grinned. No, even better, Ari. You need to find the man who clipped your wings. Clip his wings right back. Eight years of dissatisfying lives focused only through the lens of my knife meditation and the reoccurring vision of the dancing woman passed before we touched down again. Eight years so easily glossed over, yet to do so is a denial of the truth, which is that the enjoyment I once took in simulated living had soured completely. Outside of the simulation I became increasingly aware of my own body. I itched, or remembered itching so vividly it seemed that I itched, and I felt hunger. Eight years so easily glossed over. The planet Grate was covered by a shallow aquamarine ocean spotted with innumerable brown islands. Luca met me in the shuttle bay wearing the body of an Egyptian goddess, statuesque and sun-browned, hawk-headed, seven and a half feet tall. She waved fingertips in my chest and said, You're still you, Ari, a ghost. Her hooked beak did not move when she spoke. I wondered if her breath smelled of meat, of rotted fish. And you are still you, Loka, I answered, a raptor. One great amber eye winked. We descended in a jacket of flame in silence. Hamo, a walled city of dried brown clay bricks, was uninteresting as were its people, walking on ached legs, clacking their claws and mouthparts unceasingly. 
The sound was maddening. After twelve deliveries, three of which oddly were pairs, the particles of my body felt jumbled. I doubted my control over them, as if my form were wavering in the hot sun. Loka disappeared silently just after the final delivery off to her pleasures. I climbed the wall of the city and dropped to the beach below. The clacking of claws and mouthparts died away and I began to relax. Lines of electric white writhed on smooth rocks below crystalline water. The sea extended to the horizon before me, broken only by humped bodies of islands too numerous to count. Close to shore, small fish and invertebrates flitted from rock to rock. A school of paddle-finned insects the size of sea turtles swam slowly just below the surface several meters out, feeding on something I could not see. As I watched, a dark shape detached itself from a distant rock and arrowed through the water toward me. The school of insects parted, but not quickly enough. Without slowing, the dark shape's arms darted, impaling one, two, three. Yellow gore trailed in its wake. I waited. He rose from the water. His body glistened. Small black eyes set deep in an angular skull regarded me for a moment and looked away, uninterested. He held one fist closed, slender tendrils of yellow ichor dripping from it. Hello, Slav Slalachem, I said. I was not surprised to see him. I half suspected he would be there. I had become used to meeting him on water planets. Slav Slalachem enjoyed one thing above all else, hunting. It was the only personal information he shared with me. During our meetings, he made displays of skill and talked of killing. I had once confessed to him a love for hunting, though his proclivities were vastly different from mine. He never bagged his kill. Many times I witnessed him moving on without pausing to examine what he had killed. The first time I witnessed this behavior was also the first time I remember wanting to kill Slav Salachem. I began trying to become a knife soon after. Three pairs today, Arahant, Slav Salachem said. That should please you. It took me a moment to understand that he was referring to the deliveries. Why would that please me? I asked. He shrugged. They are your people. He flicked a piece of viscera from his arm. It is better for them not to be alone, no? Your people are very communal, if I remember correctly. Very poor survival strategy in the long run. This was the other type of conversation I had with Slav Salachem. I believe he wanted to incite a reaction from me. This had always seemed the underlying purpose of our meetings, to anger me, belittle my people. Of course, now I know the truth. He was trying to keep my spirit under his heels so that I would never consider betrayal. It is, I asked. It is, and complicating for business. I find myself wondering if selling a pair of human souls is better for our long-term plans than selling just one. Pain is often more compelling than joy in my experience, and usually more sellable. His eyes met mine and flicked away again. Then again, maybe it is possible that this is the wrong tack as well. Perhaps I should simply raise the price of pears, market them like one does a breeding pair. What do you think, Arahant? I looked away. How was your hunt? He sighed. Too easy. He raised the closed fist to his face and opened it. A translucent blue globe sat within. It went into his mouth whole, a flash of blood-red gums and ivory teeth. Mm, easy. But quite delicious. There is no way to tell the difference between male and female, Sipar. There are far fewer females than males. One must kill a dozen or so animals before finding an ovary. I did not kill Slav Slalachem that day, although I wanted to. But the anger had not focused me into a weapon. 
while he talked of killing, a wave of nausea I could not explain passed through me. With no stomach, no organs to speak of, nausea is surely impossible, yet I felt it, the urge to vomit. I feared that if I did, my body would fly apart and I would be unable to piece myself together again. To keep from doing so, I fantasized about smothering Slav Salachem in a cloud, asphyxiating him. Thankfully, before I lost control completely, he grew bored with our interaction and dived back into the water, taking my nausea with him. Powerful strokes soon took him out of sight. I thought then that my plan was foolishness. I could not kill Slav Salachem. I had been a fool to think I could, had overestimated my courage and control. I turned my back on the sea. On the wall of the city above me stood Loka. I held up a hand in greeting, but she did not respond. Her eyes were fixed on the horizon. Curious, I waited for a reaction, some hint at her purpose. None was forthcoming. After several minutes, both of us standing motionless, she turned and jumped down out of sight. I eventually followed, intent on explaining my interaction with Slav Salachem. As far as I knew, she was not aware of his existence, and I worried what conclusion she might have drawn from our interaction. That night I walked the streets of Hamo, looking for her. The alleyways and avenues were quiet, utterly deserted. I circled the city by walking on the enclosing wall, but saw no sign of Loka. Near morning, however, as the horizon began to glow and the citizens started clacking their claws, I thought I heard one of her piercing cries far out to sea. A guilty conscience, surely. My job is to watch Loka for signs of instability, and I had been lax. Her madness had always run along predictable paths, but if this changed, she would be in danger. Slav Salachem would not hesitate to replace her. When Loka and I met at the shuttle the following morning, I said nothing, hoping she would tell me what it was she had seen, or what it was she had hoped to see staring out at the ocean. She did not. The feathers on her head were dark and stiff, stuck together in spikes. I suffered a moment of doubt and wondered, if I could pluck one of her feathers and taste it, would it taste like the sea? We walked in silence along Loka's corridors. Before stepping into my ship, she finally spoke. For a second yesterday I thought you were hunting. She angled her head down and turned so that I stared directly into one dark eye. For a second I thought you were a hawk, too. I guess I was wrong. I'm disappointed in you, Ari. No, don't say anything. It's okay. I forgive you because you're not as strong as me. She started to reach forward but stopped centimeters from my chest. I... Oh, Ari, I forget what you are sometimes. But don't fret. I'm going to do something for you. Do you want me to do something for you, Ari? Before I could answer, she turned and left. I wonder, what would I have said if she had not walked away? Tava, Smoltwar, Klinklin, Abbas, Barun, I remember the names, but not much of the places or people. Loka was twice forced to fashion modified bodies to handle the atmosphere. Once, she inhabited the body of a great clanking robot and refused to speak. She beeped and flashed lights at me. Fortunately, we need not communicate to do our job, though I wonder if she interpreted my lack of comprehension as rudeness. On one planet we saw nothing but the inside of a bare room. For the first time the customer came to us, and we were not allowed our shore leave. Loka, wearing the body of an immense bat, scratched gouges in the metal walls in her rage. I worried that it might become a regular thing. Maybe we would never see the surface of another planet. I knew I could do nothing for Loka in that event. Fortunately, it seemed to be an isolated occurrence. My relationship with Loka returned to normal. We never talked of Grate or Jejuno. The space between stars was silent as always. I had a lot of time to think, lives to squander. I stopped meditating. Gradually the dancing woman left me alone. 
She disappeared, and for a time I convinced myself that I had forgiven myself. Gradually I gave up my plan for revenge. This is not true, not entirely. I would not tell this story otherwise. Slavsna Lachem is, after all, dead, but I am not the one most responsible. Loka has a passion for death I did not then comprehend. She is also more watchful than I knew, though I doubt she understands what she sees. She is all reaction, no forethought or reflection. The oceans of Zhef were nothing like the shallow, friendly seas of Grati. Deeper and colder than Earth's waters, Zhef's oceans had given birth to an astounding variety of marine life. After our deliveries in the port city of Erois were completed and Loka disappeared, I watched the fishing boats unload at the docks. For several hours the massive, six-limbed sailors of Zhef pulled no two of the same creature from their cargo holds, toothy fish and finned reptiles of all sizes and shapes. I was not surprised when a small boat arrived bearing a messenger. Silent, the sailor presented a slip of paper to me. On it was written, Go with him. He will take you to me. I watched black seabirds fly as we hugged the jagged shoreline. The sky was overcast but bright, the kind of fluorescent white it hurts the eyes to stare into. Spires of dark gray rock, jagged and bare, rose like teeth to eat the landscape behind us. The trip to the small bay lasted less than an hour, but we lost sight of the city within minutes. In the center of the bay was a hole. Glimpsed now and then as gray waves rose and fell, the sailor gave it a wide berth. It looked very much like a whirlpool, but did not seem to affect the currents. The hole had to be artificial. Suddenly waves of nausea passed through me just as they had the last time I met Slav Salachem. The sailor pointed to the dark hole and rumbled alien words. I needed no translation. I dispersed into a cloud and floated off the deck. Forty feet deep and ten wide, the walls of the well were black, smooth as glass. Slav Salachem stood on dry sand at the bottom waiting for me. He wore an unusual garment on his torso, a harness or armored vest with two smooth silver compartments positioned over chest and upper back. His eyes followed me down. I imagine he wanted to show that he could see me though I had not formed my body yet. Hello, Slav Salachem, I said, organizing my particles. He looked away, now dismissive. Arahant, what do you think of my aquarium? Outside this temporary wall swim over five thousand species of carnivore, some no bigger than my palm, and some well over fifty feet in length. Are you hunting? I asked. He smiled an open, honest smile. He only displayed this expression when the hunting was particularly good. Yes, I am hunting today, or I hunt. Do you want to see the creature I am hunting? Good, watch. Torchlight bloomed in the bay. Beyond the wall Slav Salachem had erected, mobile lights were moving, illuminating three long, sinuous shapes. I stared, gradually forming a picture of the creature Slav Salachem was to hunt. Measuring fifteen to twenty feet, it was shaped somewhat like an eel, though flatter, flattened horizontally rather than vertically. Its wide mouth could not close due to the length of its teeth. It had no eyes, though I doubted it suffered much for their lack. Though it moved slowly, I knew it could move quickly if the situation demanded it. It was one of the most beautiful creatures I had ever seen. The lights went out. They are quite intelligent, Slav Slalachem said. I have observed them for days. These three females control this bay, protecting their eggs from other creatures and males of their own species with an enviably violent and cunning zeal. Alas, unprotected, I am no match for even one individual creature, nor for many of her cousin species. 
I must protect myself within this wall, though I keep it very close to my body while hunting. You have no weapon, I observed. He smiled again, clearly enjoying the subject. In addition to protecting me, I can form atom-thin knives and spears from the force field substance. Still, it is a challenging hunt. They do not die easily. He stretched, grimacing. And the generator packs restrict my movement. What one does for sport, eh, Arahant? I said nothing. I remember thinking how often Slav Salachem mirrored my anxieties, how often he seemed to read my soul. A knife or a spear? You will watch, Slav Salachem said, after I remind you of the terms of your employment. Loka has been watching me, as I am sure you are aware. I only became aware after our last meeting. She followed me, Arahant. She swam after me, chased me. And I want to know why. Beyond this, I want to know if she can be relied upon to do her job. If not, I will find someone else. Perhaps I will even consider replacing you. It will not be easy to train your replacements, but I will not hesitate. The nausea increased. I began to feel shaky, disparate, on the verge of shuddering apart. An image of Slav Salachem standing over the dancing woman's broken body flashed in my mind. I observed it as I would the real thing, from a distance unable to move. I knew then that if I did not act I would fail her. I do not know, I said. The particles of my being halted as if waiting for me to direct them. I know nothing about this. Slav Salachem stared at me a long moment before turning away. The irrational fear that he knew my thoughts returned. Should I believe you? He asked. He exhaled quickly, loudly. I realized that he was laughing. He continued. I think I should. I trust you, Arahant. I trust you because you know your chief value. You know that I will see any change in you. You have neither the personality nor cunning to betray me. You are a reliable old dog. Loka, on the other hand, I have decided that she will be replaced. She is becoming a liability and... I stopped listening. I now see that it is immaterial whether Slav Salachem had been able to read my mind. It does not matter if he understood that I was gathering the courage to kill him. He had made a judgment. I was harmless. Every molecule of my being hummed with hate. I had finally decided that death was preferable to continued slavery. No, I thought nothing of my people, the thousands of souls I had helped sell into another form of slavery. I felt hate, pure and clean. I felt free. I condensed myself into a knife, a sharp shape, and aimed for Slav Salachem's throat. I hesitated. A second? Two seconds? In that moment the sky went dark and something entered the well. Something huge fell, screaming, wings folded to its side, yet still brushing the wall. A shrill scream filled the bottom of the well, compressing my body tighter with its pressure. Slav Salachem looked up and I darted forward, burying myself in the soft tissue of his throat just before Loka slammed into the ground, crushing his body beneath her. She died, of course, along with Slav Salachem. If the fall was not enough to kill her, the water caving in probably was. If that also did not kill her, the creatures of the bay surely did. Thus, Loka does not remember killing Slav Salachem.
Her body was never recovered, and her memories died on the planet Jeff. Loka the Hawk never uploaded to Loka the ship. Whatever urge had compelled her to kill our employer died with her. Or it did not. Sometimes I think she is waiting for an opportunity still. Sometimes I catch her looking at me while we walk behind the cart on our errand. When she is in the body of a human, I almost read the look as wistful, possibly even loving. During these moments I remember my mother, my wife, my children, and I feel warmth suffuse my body and I think of the type of being I have become. I wonder. I wonder and maybe I remember what it feels like to be a true man. Altogether it is not a bad thing to feel, but I cannot return Loka's look. She is a crazy person. She needs me, and in my way I need her, but it is best not to read too deeply into our relationship. It is best not to dream of being closer to her, of finding a way to travel inside her instead of so far behind. We would undoubtedly grow tired of one another, being cooped up together for such long periods. My employer's replacement, Slav Samas, arrived three weeks after Slav Salachim's death. He recovered the generator packs from the bay, but no body was found. I stuck to my story. Slav Salachem and I had talked for a time, and then he had dismissed me. You died while hunting, then? Slav Samas rumbled in a thick voice I struggled to understand. It was hunting something dangerous. I described to him the animals that Slav Salachem had shown me. And he was also being hunted, Slav Samask asked. He wondered if this was a fair assumption. I think it is a fair assumption, I answered. It is perhaps that simple, the deception of my new employer. It is my understanding that he came into Slav Salachem's position unprepared and uninformed. Certainly he knew nothing of his predecessor's plan to restrict the sale of human souls to pairs, and so I dutifully informed him of the conversation Slav Salachem and I had before his death. With my help, Slav Samas grew to understand the economic benefits. He is, if anything, more unpredictable than my former employer, quicker to anger, quicker to threats. His loathsomeness, however, is manageable. He does not hunt, nor does he draw me into conversation. He is not stupid, but he is not a sophisticated mind either. It is possible that I can deceive him again, win more concessions, but I do not suffer any delusions. Whatever my contribution, it will be small. Men are still slaves. Loka and I are no more than couriers. I record these words for a posterity that will not exist. And that was our story. Zachary would like to point out that this is inspired by a line in a Frank Black song, In the Time of My Ruin. I was a hawk and I just flew in. Listening to the song probably won't give any insight to the story, but you should listen to it anyway because it's great. You'd also like to thank authors and friends Keith Potemta, Adam Mills, Mike Kimball, and James Patrick Kelly for great suggestions concerning the story. Escape Pod will be open again to submissions in February. If you have an outstanding story with us and haven't heard from us by February 1st, not today, February 1st, please, please email me. Another bit of news, we're changing our guidelines slightly. We want stories no longer than 6,000 words, but we're removing the $300 cap on payment for the rare stories we buy that are longer. Escape Pod is a production of Escape Artists Incorporated and is distributed under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives Derivatives? derivatives. That's hard to say, No Derivatives License. I say it every week, and it's still hard to say. Anyway, that means share it, but don't change it or charge for it. 
All other rights are reserved by our authors. Escape Pod is edited by Murr Lafferty, with Bill Peters as assistant editor and Matt Weller as producer. Our music is by permission of Daikaiju. You can hear more from them at daikaiju.org. Remember that we're a paying market, and you can donate to support all of the Escape Artist podcasts, including Podcastle for Fantasy and Pseudopod for Horror, at their .org domains or escapepod.org. That was our show for this week. Our quote comes from Henry David Thoreau. Every man casts a shadow, not his body only, but his imperfectly mingled spirit. This is his grief. Let him turn which way he will. It falls opposite to the sun, short at noon, long at eve. Did you never see it? Thanks for listening. Have fun. And be mighty. We'll see you next week. <laughs>